The Humpo Peanut employs a lot of people. Peanut butter and peanut brittle and those Girl Scout sandwich cookies taste good. So why does the peanut get no respect? Well, I don't think I have an answer for that, but I do have some reasons to give it respect and some ways to make it shine for our taste buds. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 149. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello folks, Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Purchase your copy of my cookbook, Cooking for Comfort on Amazon or from the link on my webpage, culinarylibertarian.com slash cooking for comfort. Peanuts. Yes, it is a superior comic strip. But today I'm talking about goobers or ground nuts or that baseball park treat, the peanut. Listing peanut products seems almost a forest gump exercise, starting with peanut brittle and ending with the very fancy and expensive peanut butter with a whole lot of kinds of confections in between. No doubt you have seen peanuts in gorp or other snacks and honey roasted and salted in the shell, or beer nuts, or Spanish peanuts, or brittle, or even peanut oil, or soup. Yes, peanut soup. It will not surprise you much to learn it tastes like peanut butter. What started me on this journey of peanuts for this episode was remembering, fondly, the boiled peanuts at a now-closed produce stand in Tallahassee called Tomato Land. As the name suggests, it was a great place for tomatoes, but a bit off to the side, kind of hidden from main view, was the boiling barrel where those peanuts, when they were still steaming, were, man, they were fantastic. Now, I'll admit, it took me a time or two for the boiled peanut to take, me, you know, me being a Michigander and all, but once, once I got it, it stuck. And for me, they have to be still steaming from the pot. No cold or canned boiled peanuts for me. The peanuts we eat today are from four main varieties, and they're all from the same peanut parent, so to speak. The peanut, which isn't a nut at all, but a legume, which basically is a seed inside of a pod, probably is South American in origin and may be as old as 950 BC. Through shipping and trading over the centuries, the peanut made its way to Africa, then to the U.S. The peanut is grown around the world, but seems to prefer tropical or subtropical climates but not exclusively. Oklahoma has a peanut industry, so the peanuts do seem to acclimate well. They want hot, and I think Oklahoma has that. 
You can grow peanuts at home, but there are a few items to note. Since they are a tropical plant, they like humid environments and damp soil. I didn't say the M word, you're welcome. So, in my part of the high desert in Oregon, peanuts are probably not going to work well since the humidity tends to be around zero, with a high of 20, and then you can see the people here swelter. Peanuts do have a long season, 140 days or so, and want warm soil until they are ready, so you'll have to wait until the next spring to start them and transplant them outside in June, or at least here in June, because we do get freezes even then. According to the Oklahoma Peanut Commission website, Valencia or Spanish are the easiest to grow at home. What I learned about the peanut plant that is interesting is the flower dips down toward the soil and pokes into the ground to form the peanut. I thought they were a little bit like the potato and the peanuts grew in the ground like a tuber does as part of the roots, but nope. So if you plant them, you can, and you can do that in a container, give them about 18 inches around diameter to, I think about my geometry, to make sure that when the plant starts to fall toward the ground that the flowers can reach and, and grow the peanuts in the soil. So unlike a tomato or a tomatillo, staking both isn't necessary and isn't really wanted because you want that plant to be as close to the ground as possible so as many flowers can create the peanut uh, as possible. The other point is let your plant go yellow or maybe even start to brown before you harvest. Every gardener knows that at some point, the if you let carrots or parsnips stay in the ground past the first frost, the energy from the greenery goes into the, into the plant, into the fruit, into the carrot of the parsnip. Uh, in in Florida, where it tends to get kind of cold, uh, those who can stand to do so leave the grapefruits on the trees until after the first frost, somewhere in January or so, and the sweetness of a pink grapefruit after a first frost compared to before is, is mind-bogglingly mind-bogglingly different and hard to say. So we want the plant of the peanut to sort of die off to put all of the energy into the peanuts so that you have a better flavor, but also they take that long for the kernel inside to form. You may pull them, harvest them early and see all this exterior shell and be disappointed that you don't have this full-size kernel inside. I will put a link to a video from the Michigan Gardener on the show notes page, which explains this a little bit more. I did mention that there are four main varieties of peanuts that are commercially grown. I've read that there are dozens, maybe even hundreds of varieties. And in the wild, where they grow wild, they probably do whatever it is that plants do, morphing and evolving into different strains for whatever reasons. But these four, 
the Virginia, the Spanish, the Runner, and the Valencia seem to be the most preferred for commercial use. And even in that, some varieties have specific cultivars, and that may not be the correct word, for specific disease resistance, for oil quality and quantity, for harvest yield, and for taste. Back at the Tomatoland store, I asked the owner, Butch, what kind of peanuts he used. Virginia and Valencia were the two he mentioned, and Valencia seems the preferred peanut for boiling. To boil peanuts, pick and clean them and boil them in salted water for a few hours. Some recipes read to soak the peanuts overnight in lightly salted water to cut down on the boiling time. I'm not certain the difference is worth the effort, but soaking something overnight isn't a whole lot of effort to begin with. As with most things that have a recommended ingredient, the best peanut to boil is the one you have. You might remember something somewhere about George Washington Carver inventing so almost 300 uses for the peanut. Little support has ever been found for that claim, but it is so that Carver was very important to agriculture in the South and did have a distinguished life with much to say for it. So re regardless of the claims, he, had a, he, he did make a contribution. As to the culinary uses for peanuts, most of us know the previously mentioned peanut butter as the lunch choice for school kids. Peanut butter and butter was and remains a bit of a favorite of mine. Peanut butter fudge and peanut brittle and peanut butter cookies and peanut butter and honey roasted and spiced and probably dozens more I can't think of right now are all fun ways to use peanuts. Another use, I'll get to some of those recipes in a bit, is peanut oil. Now, peanut oil is my preferred oil for the deep fryer and for some hand drying. My best hunch for commercial production of peanut oil is they use a giant version of what looks like a champion brand juicer, which pulverizes the ingredient, peanuts here, to a paste and then extracts the oil, which comes through a really fine mesh screen on the underside of the grinder. So think of a grinder attachment on your KitchenAid or maybe you've seen it at the butcher shop. And the screen is on the, on, on the bottom part of where the meat's going through, except we're not using meat, we're using veggies or peanuts. At the extrusion end of the little grinder thing, the big grinder thing, the peanut, mass, I suppose, is what's coming out uh, of the of the other end. Now, I don't know if there is any culinary use for that. Um, it's possible you could mix it with equal parts of butter and give it some salt and maybe make a spread out of it. It's possible you could add some chicken stock to it and make a soup out of it. <laughs> it's possible for the pigs. Who knows? Peanut oil is possible. To make it home and you don't need that fancy thing. I'm not, entirely, not entirely sure why someone would want to do this except that being able to control for quality is a pretty good reason and if you grow your own peanuts 
and make your own peanut oil, you certainly have some sense of the quality of your ingredients. I found at least two ways to make peanut oil at home that doesn't require a champion style juicer. If you've got that, use it. Um, both sort of start the same way, which is to use the food processor and make peanut butter. The first one is to, well, they both start the same. So take your Spanish peanuts because they are the highest in oil, roast them, cool them, work the skins off, the little papery uh, red and brown bits. We don't want that. Once you have your peanuts, process them in a food processor till they're smooth and go smooth. So way method one is to make this very, very, very smooth peanut butter, put it into a jar big enough to hold it and wait for the oil to rise to the top and just pour that off. And as it continues to rest in the jar, more oil will come to the surface and you'll get some peanut oil out of that. Um, and so it's effective, it works. You're not gonna have, a, you're not gonna deep fry in it, but you'll get some, you'll get some peanut oil. The second method is to do the same thing. Roast them, cool them, skin them, turn this into peanut butter, but then put that into a large bowl and with what is basically a clean foot-long piece of broomstick. You don't need to cut a broom. Go to Lowe's or Home Depot or your local hardware store and you can buy a dowel that big. You're going to use it like a pestle for a mortar and pestle. And you're going to uh, beat on this peanut butter with your stick. <laughs> Sounds pretty primitive. And add a tablespoon at a time of water to this peanut butter, incorporating the water into the peanuts, peanut butter, as you keep pounding it together. Now, what's happening here is peanut, in this case, the peanut is kind of similar to the cocoa bean. Only in the sense that there's oil in the thing, but there's no water. The, the peanut mass, when it gets water to it, it's going to get kind of thick and sticky and it's going to be kind of a mess. Just the same way that if you put a drop or two of water in melted chocolate, it's real frustration. It looks ruined. It isn't, but that's another show. There's a way to use it, but you can't finish what you started with the product you have. The peanut mass is very it's very dry even though it has oil so it absorbs the water and as it keeps absorbing that water it's pushing out the oil so doing this peanut oil extraction in the bowl with the stick is going to produce more oil than the make the peanut butter and let it rest method it's going to take a significant more amount of shoulder and forearm strength and time but you get more oil out of it. Uh, for about five cups of peanuts, you may end up with, um, you may use a cup and a half of water uh, and get back about a cup and a half of oil. Um, so strain that through a fine mesh strainer and then probably again through a cheesecloth. I don't I don't know if this is true or not. I don't think it's gonna go through a coffee filter. I think it'd be there for a month of Sundays and that's 
not really worth that. The single advantage, again, is if you do this, you have control over the ingredients and the quality, especially if you grow the peanuts. It's interesting to do. I'm not sure it's necessary to do. Let's talk for just a second about peanut allergies. Turns out, no surprise to anybody, nowadays, peanut allergies is a thing. Now, I don't remember any kids in my elementary school having a peanut allergy. Um, that might be either selective memory. It might be that so few of us brought peanut butter jelly sandwiches to school that it wasn't a problem. It might be that it has evolved into a thing over 50 years. I don't really know. Far from being an in-depth episode about allergies to peanuts, there does seem to be some support for an increase in an immune response. As posted on the popular science webpage, Why Are So Many Kids Allergic to Peanuts? They write this, quote, Typically, the immune system treats peanuts as safe, but some scientists believe that early and heavy exposure to peanut products might cause it to misidentify them as dangerous. This theory is strengthened by the fact that 8 out of 10 allergic kids have a reaction the first time they eat a peanut, indicating a previous indirect exposure, possibly even in the womb or through breast milk, end quote. The page also reads that vitamin D deficiency might be an issue. This sentence seems to clarify their point. Quote, children who spend less time outdoors tend to be deficient in D, so the body might mislabel peanut protein as dangerous, end quote, said Robert Wood, an allergy specialist at John Hopkins University. One significant difference from 50 years ago to now is there were no video games when I was a kid. I was outside all the time in the summer. Anaphylaxis is no joke, and anyone with a severe reaction to peanuts knows this. I learned the hard way at age 8 that a bee sting allergy and anaphylaxis isn't a happy time. It's very scary stuff. Peanuts can be difficult to identify in the grocery store. All peanuts can be used for peanut butter, and all can be used for baking and confections. Confections. Some tend better for some products than others, and if you have a choice, choose the one you think is either you prefer or you think is going to be better, but you don't always have a choice. The Spanish peanut is the smallest kernel and has a reddish skin over that kernel. Most people know them as the product, Spanish peanuts, that come in a bag, shelled and salted. My stepfather loved these. Spanish peanuts are high in oil, which can le also lead to rancidity. As with all things fresh, try to buy as fresh as possible and use as soon as reasonable. The runner peanut may be the most popular for the larger relative size of the kernel and flavor. The runner accounts for 80% of U.S. peanut production, and most of that ends up as peanut butter. The Virginia peanut has the largest kernel of the peanuts. They are good for in-shell roasting and for cracking and eating, and are also good in confections. And they're probably the one you see at the um, Five Guys Pizza Place. 
no Burgerblast. The Valencia is the sweetest of the four peanuts and also has a red skin in the kernel. Valencia can often have three kernels in one pod and are the preferred peanut for boiling, but some organic peanut butters also make use of the, of the Valencia. If you find a choice, test it. See which ones work better for what you're making. If your choice is take or leave it, then that is the right peanut for you. Let's take a moment out for a word from Jake about his Tasting Anarchy podcast. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. All right, let's talk cooking, which really is probably baking. There are scores of ways to use peanuts. Make your own version of beer nuts. There are probably more than, if I found some, there may be a lot more than that, recipes online. Make your own peanut butter, but frankly, if your grocery store has a grinder, probably in the deli section, with a hopper full of peanuts, use that. If you want a smoother peanut butter than that, buy that for a buck or whatever it is for portion, puree that at home in a food processor, and just remember, the smoother it is, the more oil will come out and the more oil will rise, which means either you're pouring it off and using it, or you got to put it in a bowl and whisk it all back together. Fudge and cookies and nut butters and more are pretty amazing. Candy nuts of any kind are great for tailgating or holiday buffets or gifts. I'll add a link to candied pecans, which can easily be turned into candied peanuts. And if you like, a little dash of cayenne uh, does make a contribution, although I'm not in favor of that. My dad used to make that for Christmas, and I loved them, would have loved them more without the spice. All right, let's talk procedures. Mixing and baking is generally easier than cooking as far as explaining the details goes. But cookies do present a curious challenge in the cream the butter part. When is it done? Can it be too little or too much? And how do you know? All good questions and in order. When it is lighter in color and half again the volume, yes, yes, you may not. So, it can be creamed too little or too much, and you likely won't know about that until it's baked. The good news, as paraphrased by Peter Reinhardt, is anything made with love is delicious. The first recipe I want to give you is a verbal recipe. So, grab a pen or a pencil. And a piece of paper, or a note card, or the back of an envelope. It's short and it's easy. Half a cup of peanut butter. Half a cup of packed light brown sugar. One egg. One and a quarter cups quick 
cooking oats, half a teaspoon of baking soda, quarter of a teaspoon of salt, half a teaspoon of vanilla. So this is where the creaming part comes in. We're going to say cream the peanut butter and the brown sugar to light and half again the volume. Now, this, for you particular types out there, and I identify as one of them, you're going to have to guess. You're going to have to say this is how much it was and this is half again. This isn't something you can weigh because the air doesn't have any weight. Once your brown sugar and butter are creamed, add the egg. Mix it on slow. We don't want to wear this. Mix until that's incorporated. Then add the oats, the baking soda, the salt, and the vanilla. Mix just to incorporate, and you're done. Now this cookie you can bake right away. Drop the cookies, tablespoon or so at a time, onto a prepared sheet pan and bake at 350 for 6 to 8 minutes. Now, there's a lot of imprecision in there, and this is this is what happens when even even in cookbooks. So, how big is the cookie? Well, I said about a tablespoon. So, a tablespoon about six to eight minutes. If you're using a quarter of a cup as a measure to drop the cookies, the more dough you have, the longer it takes to cook. Bake. Now let's. Also take a moment here to talk about mise en place, having everything in place. If you're going to mix, to bake, you need to do some things first. Wash your hands. Turn on the oven. Prepare your sheet pans, which may be to line them with, with the uh, baking paper, the parchment paper, or line them with silicone mats. Have a cooling rack, clean bowls and spoons, and bowl scrapers at the ready, and a place on the counter for hot pans in a rack. Find the hot pad and the spatula to lift the cookies off. Next thing, this recipe is an excellent recipe to learn what happens when you change something. Pulse the oats. Measure them, cup and a quarter. Pulse them in a food processor to make them a little bit smaller. Then add them to the cookie dough and see what happens when you bake them. What did that change do and how do your preferences match that? Change the oats to spelt flour or einkorn flour. Uh, add chocolate chips or peanut chunks or butterscotch chips. Make notes of what changes you did and what you think of those changes. You may have an oh poop moment because spelt and oats don't absorb at the same rate and it's easy to be frustrated and wonder, what do I do? This isn't exactly intuitive, this what do I do part, and there are some ways to respond and <laughs> some ways not to respond. Throwing in the garbage is not the way to respond. First, add a little bit more butter, a little bit maybe up to a tablespoon. If the dough still looks too stiff, and, and so how do we know? What does that mean, Mr. Smarty Pants? Look in the bottom of the bowl. If it still looks crumbly and dry, if you still see bits of flour down there in the bowl that aren't being incorporated, that is a, is a cookie dough that's too dry. 
So now we need to do something else. Mix in a little bit of milk. Milk tastes good with cookies. It works well. It's moisture, which we need because it's too dry in there. Do a tablespoon or so at a time until we get that stiff, hydrated cookie dough appearance. The last option is to add an egg white. Now, not everybody has a container of egg whites just hanging around waiting to be used. You can make an egg white, but now you have an egg yolk, and what do you do with that? Save it for, you know, the omelet for tomorrow, possibly, but the egg white is mostly water. It's a lot of protein, so it will work, but it's hard to get half of an egg white without, you know, making a mess. So the idea here is baking alchemy. Skilled bakers just do this because they know what the raw product should look like. They know what a bread dough should look like. They know what they want to get from that bread dough, from the cookie dough, from the muffins, from the biscuits. They un so there's, it's not a big secret. It's just years of experience. Baking and experimenting takes a lot of people out of their comfort zone and they don't feel they are problem solvers when they're this far away from comfort. So that's being, feeling intimidated that you've done something wrong is, is a, it's a perfectly normal response. But we can fix this response by having a sense of what's, what's missing, what's going on, what do we need to do. So keep your wits about you and we will succeed. I bring up this cooking alchemy idea because in cooking land, there are more than a few things a baker can do to change the finished product simply by tweaking the ingredients. Many of the creamed cookie recipes, uh, oatmeal raisin, peanut butter, chocolate chip, those kinds of like the main categories of cookies call for equal parts of white and light brown sugar. And that makes a fine cookie. But by changing a few things, doubling the brown sugar, having the white sugar, we're going to change the quantity of molasses that goes into the cookie dough, cookie batter, cookie dough, and therefore we're adding more moisture to this. Uh, see, I said the N word. That's also adding a little bit more flavor. Bread flour or pastry flour or cake flour will make a different cookie than the all purpose flour. For our peanut butter cookie, many recipes call for equal parts of butter and peanut butter. What if you add more peanut butter and less butter? What if you use that homemade peanut butter with the oil on top instead of the homogenized, shelf-stable, commercial peanut butter, Skiffy, or Jif, or whatever else is out there? The texture of your cookie will change, and these are things, and I don't know how much oil is in any of those other ones, so we have to, these are things you will see and, and have to make an addition. This experimentation is also a good place to make a recipe as written, 
watch the ball, watch inside the ball, see what's happening. Next time, change something. Don't change two things because then we don't know what the thing is that changed. We don't know what we don't know which of those two changes produce the result we prefer. As you learn to read the ball, you'll start to understand how the ingredients work together and you'll know how to troubleshoot the next time if it doesn't look right. The last recipe I will include is a PDF on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 149, and it's my version of a peanut butter sandwich cookie. Think more Nabisco than Girl Scouts. The filling, by the way, can be used as the filling between layers of cake. And uh, I think, wow, uh, while it's still spreadable, a um, so what the way bakers will easily fill a cake is you either use icing as a as a dam to hold the thing in so you can put like like any kind of a jam inside so you have your cake round layer uh, with your icing you pipe a uh, with a straight tip pipe an edge around the outside top of the cake put your filling in there put your cake layer on top and maybe do it again or maybe not um, piping an edge on the top of that cake layer with the cookie peanut butter filling and then filling that space with on the cake with that peanut butter filling would be a fine fine thing indeed and i mean this is this is insulin overload but we're going for flavor here so chocolate tea cake with the peanut butter filling and cream cheese icing oh my goodness Oh, the corner. No, don't do that. I'm kidding. But it's going to be, holy moly, is that going to be good. The um, cakes, now, speaking of cakes, cakes and cupcakes and icing and doing that, that's actually another episode, which is episode 44 at culinarylibertarian.com slash 44. Check online for versions of peanut brittle. They're all going to be a little bit different. Some of them will have butter. Some of them will not have butter. Butter will make them um, a little bit cloudier, but also give it a better flavor. Some of them will have uh, a little bit of uh, baking soda, which will go into it, which makes it, um, it makes it a little bit cloudy, cloudier than sometimes it's not always clear, but it's sort of translucent. This is more opaque. And it becomes more like the pecan pralines that you get from Aunt Sally's in New Orleans. Um, but so it has a nice peanut flavor. Um, I find peanut brittle almost always is woefully shy of peanuts. So um, you can practice adding more peanuts to that. Uh, I find that a, a clean, uh, dedicated cast iron pan really works well. But not everybody has that. But that's if you've got one, go. You know, it works good for peanut brittle. But any, anything good and solid and heavy will do for peanut brittle. Um, uh, peanut butter fudge. I met. I did a fudge episode some while ago, and, and didn't really get into peanut butter fudge. But maybe that'll be a Christmas time thing for confections again. Um, there's just fried peanut soup. It's, yeah, it tastes like liquid peanut butter, but it's not bad, and it. Now, there's a place where uh, the heat, um, cayenne's too much. Um, 
Uh, I hope it doesn't sound right. Uh, we teeny teeny bit of scotch bonnet, a poblano would be okay. Something with some flavor that's compatible, some cilantro, some caramelized red onions, some roasted red peppers would also, that would be good. Uh, maybe some rice, maybe make a meal out of it. Uh, give it a shot. Play with some stuff. Play with some peanuts. Go make some dishes. Let me, send me what you did. Let's, let's cook. All right, folks, that's going to do it. I want to tell you about an idea for a course I'm working on. And I want to, I want to, want to go with this. I'm developing a baking course called It Starts With a Muffin and begins with the various ways to mix muffins and extends those skills and techniques into all baking. Not pastry, but baking. This means from muffins, we can work our way into biscuits or cakes or cookies and breads. The foundation of this course seems solid, but the next step is students. So I want to open this up for five people because this is still kind of the beta part. Uh, if you're interested, send me an email at podcast at culinarylibertarian.com. Let me know that you're interested and I'll send you some more information. Please share this episode on your social media feeds and like it when you see it. Uh, and if you do test some of these variations for that cookie or you make something else, uh, drop me a note, send me, show me what you did and tell me how, uh, if you altered it, how did it work out and what did you think about it? Also, please rate and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Have a great week and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.